This episode is sponsored by Unique One Network, MIMO, and Quantstamp. We have to find a voice. The industry that mines Bitcoin specifically needs to find a voice to talk about the things they do that actually help build sustainability into energy. The, obviously, when you're mining coin, you want the lowest cost of energy you can get, and that makes you invest capital in finding it and finding sustainable ways to have it so that you can mine in the most profitable way you can. The profit motivation of mining Bitcoin is actually helping sustainability. The challenge with a decentralized asset like Bitcoin is there's no central voice. There are thousands of participants, but there's no committee. There's no, for lack of a better word, lobby group that says, no, these are the actual stats. This is the real information. There's lots of different tangents, but it's an industry that's so nascent, so new, that it hasn't found a way to say, wait a second, we're being accused of all these incorrect facts. We're going to fix this. We're going to put out real information. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Money Reimagined, the ESG edition. I'm Michael Casey, and I'm joined by my regular podcast co-host, Sheila Warren. This is the first episode of two in which we'll discuss a hot topic on both Wall Street and in the crypto community, ESG. The idea that companies and investors should set environmental, social, and governance objectives to promote global sustainability. Now, it's true, the crypto industry faces challenges in this area. Just look at how Elon Musk stirred concerns about Bitcoin's carbon footprint. But it's also true that blockchain technology holds potential to improve ESG efforts. I'm excited for this, Sheila. So, my Michael, I should note that the idea for these sessions actually comes from a special project spearheaded by the World Economic Forum in partnership with Coindesk. We're setting up what we're calling the Crypto Impact and Sustainability Accelerator, or CISA, which will house at the forum and bring together a variety of stakeholders uh, from sectors as varied as finance, tech, accounting, government, civil society, academics, the goal being to support open source market-driven approaches to ESG, all within a common commitment to interoperability and compliance international targets. So our sessions on ESG today and tomorrow align with CISA's soft launch, and we'll formally announce the group's founding membership in the fall. I'll also note that our guests today and tomorrow aren't necessarily here because they've made any formal commitment to the CISA project. They're really here as experts to help us get this vital conversation going. Okay, so with that, we start with what is arguably the most urgent of ESG objectives, containing climate change. In the 2015 Paris Accord, governments committed to bring the net amount of greenhouse gas emissions down to zero midway through this century. Here's the problem. How do we measure progress? We need a uniform, transparent, trustworthy accounting model that's consistent for everyone. In essence, we need a common planetary carbon ledger. Who would maintain such a ledger? Or is this a case for a decentralized model offered by blockchains? To discuss this, we're joined by Masamba Tiyoye from the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, commonly known as the UNFCCC. He's also the co-chair at the Climate Change Coalition. And we also welcome Martin Weinstein, founder and executive director at the Open Earth Foundation. Welcome to you both. So, 
Masamba, why don't we start with you? Please talk us through some of the high-level global challenges that exist in terms of measuring and accounting for this massive collective undertaking. Thank you. One of the most important challenge that is faced when it comes to climate policy making is to be able to measure the impact of climate action or to measure the to account for GSG emitted by an, an entity. This is the basis for developing policies. For example, if you want to incentivize, you need first to, to account. Now what happened is there are type of accounting that are quite well known, well established, where actually new digital technology can help improve, but these are things that are already in, in place. However, there are areas where we need actually to have some enabling technology to be able to do what we want to do. So, for example, when we would like to take a, a need-based approach for GSG accounting, when we want to have an approach for GSG accounting that is based on consumption and not on production, we have a very, very important challenge because you will need to measure the carbon footprint of product using a life cycle analysis. And uh, we do not know how to do it in a way that is transparent currently. So this is in this type of area where the new digital technology such as blockchain can be extremely helpful. Thank you. Martine, you've also talked about the need for a uniform interoperable model of climate accounting. How do you think we achieve that? And how do you see blockchain technology fitting into it? Thank you. And it's really a pleasure to join all of you in, in this panel. Uh, I'd probably start by saying there is a global accounting system, and that is housed at the UNFCCC in some sense. Every country submits their inventories uh, abiding by the IPCC guidelines. The issue, and that's the heart of the Paris Agreement, it pertains between sovereign nations, the parties to the UNFCCC, and the Secretariat, the UNFCCC. So what happens with companies, what happens with subnational governments, and even individuals, which are geographically nested within countries? Part of our work at Yale and the Open Earth Foundation has been, we probably need to think about a nested climate accounting system, where we were all housed within a broader system, let's say a subnational government and the country. When it comes down to companies, uh, their operations can traverse multiple different regions. It is imperative to be able to create a lot more automation and efficiency in how all this data aggregation works without creating double counting, that we, we focus on the interoperability. And a lot of that work is now leading to perhaps some of the core aspects of interoperability in blockchain, which is decentralized identifiers and verifiable credentials, which have the capacity to showcase something that historically has been really hard. How do you convey transparency? alongside data privacy. And so when we're able to connect uh, the, the data from supply chains that Masama was describing, uh, understand the, the full footprint of a corporation and being able to verify that almost instantly by, by an auditor and then roll that data up into the jurisdiction in which those operations and that entity lies, it would simplify the process of creating uh, national, international inventories almost to an immediate level. And that's, it's almost like looking into the block explorer. That's, I think, where, where we should be sort of aiming 
all the tools that we have now in play, the, the challenge is putting them all together so we all speak the same language. So Martin, what is also needed, of course, is innovation, right? There's so many different challenges, so many different aspects to this. How do we encourage that? How do we find a balance whereby we're encouraging this competitive drive to innovate, but at the same time, maintain common standards that, as you say, roll up into this larger objective? Well, there's, there's many ways to answer that question. I think it's a, it's a great one. I, I believe we all need to be part of the same system because we are part of the same system. We all, everything we do is housed within our atmosphere. Uh, so no matter what accounting we do, it all ends up into our, what we understand as our carbon budget. So once we're able to find a way in which individuals, companies, subnational governments, and, and sovereign nations are part of the same accounting and accountability network, probably that won't be housed in official settings. It has to be almost like an independent network. Probably the best way to tackle this is to have constant readability and consensus on the state of that carbon budget. And that is literally derived from the state of the art of science. Our network of sensors, they're to tell us uh, how much CO2 we can still put in the atmosphere. If we're able to map all of our ourselves as climate agents into an interoperable network and are able to derive information from the state of the planet, uh, there's all kinds of rule setting we could create, such as carbon pricing that's it's defined by the physics of planet Earth, not purely by uh, arbitrary sort of economic calculation. And I think that's, that's where a lot of the innovation might lead. But to be able to achieve the, all of that, we require very robust open innovation frameworks, open source, understanding what we uh, often call beyond intellectual property into intellectual stewardship. Intellectual stewardship agreement to, for planet Earth as a core digital infrastructure to be able to achieve all this. Masamba, clearly a, a critical part of this community is, of course, the public sector and governments, whether subnational or at the national level. How supportive are governments of making this information open and transparent and of using blockchain solutions? Yeah, it's clear that if we want to enhance transparency, the digital technology can help a lot, particularly blockchain. So if you want to have uh, transparency at all level, meaning at the level of government, at the level of subnational, but also at the level of individual citizen who could be also a climate actor. And more importantly, if you want to give access to the climate action schemes as well as to the incentive to all type of entities down to the level of individual, we need to have a, a robust, transparent system that will allow to measure the climate contribution of all these different entities, be it an, uh, a state, a nation, be it a subnational like city or an, an individual citizen. So, Masamba, in the crypto community, in the, there's a view that open public blockchains are, are far better for driving innovation than closed private networks. But that's often a challenge for companies and for governments. How amenable are those entities to this idea of a public infrastructure? I think um, as long as the balance between transparency and uh, ensuring that confidentiality, there is no breach to confidentiality is, is, is addressed, it's not a big problem. Where I see more maybe uh, an issue is this issue related to the consumption of, of energy in 
when you have permission ledgers, it seems that the consumption of energy is much lower than in most of the open one. But I think when it comes to transparency, as long as we can manage the issue of confidentiality, everybody is uh, happy to have enhanced transparency. So Martin, this is going to take a multi-stakeholder ecosystem-wide effort. Could you tell us briefly about the Open Earth Foundation's, your collaborative approach to climate tech? And do you think that these fiercely competitive tech providers are going to really be willing to come together and collaborate? Well, we have to. So we come uh, with an ethos of radical collaboration. Our work uh, as, a, as a nonprofit was to establish uh, the important area of research, development, design of open digital infrastructure for better or system management. And not because that's something easy to do, particularly because it's hard and because we need it. And we have to look at the earth system first and then being able to understand that in some ways, in the, particularly in the climate accounting space, a lot of entities and new startups are building their own websites. No one's building the internet in some sense. This is just a, an analogy. It is very important that we, we draw out the lessons of the last couple of years in the distributed ledger technology space to say, how do we create that common infrastructure? The reason why I think I'm optimistic that entities would collaborate is because we've also advanced a lot into how business models can be sitting on top of open source infrastructure. Either you, you define your business as open source or not, you can still have your proprietary enterprise-grade solutions sitting on top of an open source infrastructure that actually has the ability to establish queries and trust the information that your app layer is providing through that, let's say, zero-knowledge proof information and verifiability. And it kind of links a bit to the other question of permission blockchains and permissionless. They have to all be part of a common system. And obviously, in permission networks within supply chains, the trust between the parties that are relevant to it is very key. But then put together, all of that could be transparently reported, not into the raw data, but data derivatives into the permissionless infrastructure. So, uh, so much to unpack there, but that's uh, it for now. Thank you to Masamba Tioye from the UNFCCC uh, and to Martin Weinstein, Open Earth Executive Director. Coming after the break, seasoned investor Kevin O'Leary talks sustainable investing. There's so many blockchains and NFT marketplaces these days, and none of them work together. Introducing Unique One Network, the easy way to build multi-blockchain DeFi-enabled NFT marketplaces, where instead of picking your favorite blockchain, you let your users and creators pick for themselves. Powered by Polkadot, Unique One Network lets you service NFT creators and collectors across art, photography, philanthropy, gaming, finance, and more. So do yourself a favor and head over to uniqueone.network now to learn more. That's uniqueone.network to learn more. Looking to exit the volatility of crypto, but don't want to deal with the inflation of the dollar? Minting PAR using MIMO DeFi is exactly what you're looking for to get ahead of that. PAR is the number one Europeg token on the market, minted at an incredibly low 2% interest rate and backed by collaterals like Ether, Bitcoin, and USDC. Stabilize your portfolio. Open a vault and access the power of blockchain through MIMO protocol today at MIMO.capital. That's MIMO, M-I-M-O, dot capital.
After climbing 1,400% in total value locked last year, DeFi continues to quickly innovate over traditional finance and is on track to become the financial infrastructure of tomorrow. This new infrastructure has unique security needs, and QuantStamp has already secured over $100 billion worth of digital assets for the best projects in the space. Visit quantstamp.com blog to learn why DeFi projects like Maker, Compound, and BarnBridge trust QuantStamp to fulfill their security needs. That's quantstamp.com blog to learn more. Welcome back to Money Reimagined, the ESG edition, where we are exploring the roles for blockchain and digital assets in achieving global sustainability goals. Before the break, we spoke about carbon accounting. Now we move to Wall Street, where assets under management are sustained. Sustainability-focused funds are nearing $2 trillion. Joining us is OShares ETF chairman and Shark Tank investor, Kevin O'Leary. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks for joining Hi, us. Hi, Kevin. Thanks for joining Hi. us. Hey, Kevin. So you recently said on Coindesk TV that institutions ESG committees are, in fact, taking a harder look at crypto assets specifically and demanding better compliance. And of course, that conversation's only heated up since then, especially around Bitcoin. So we'd love to know, what's your take on the current view in ESG in terms of the sector? This is all a good thing. And I'll tell you why. It shows you that the institutional allocation committees and, and sovereign funds and pension plans and large institutions who really have been ignoring crypto for quite a long time. I know we're all very excited about it, but the truth is that less than 1% of institutions globally actually carry it as an asset class at all. So we're just at the nascent beginning of this interest. And as you know, and it's been discussed quite a bit in the last few weeks, most of these institutions have both ethics and sustainability committees that filter offerings before they're allocated on the investment committee. And they're doing the same thing with every asset. They're not just singling out crypto or Bitcoin or Ether. It doesn't matter. They're doing it with every asset. And so the fact that they're going through this process, I consider a very positive sign. And now the, we have to find a voice. The industry that mines Bitcoin specifically needs to find a voice to talk about the things they do that actually help build sustainability into energy. The, obviously, when you're mining coin, you want the lowest cost of energy you can get. And that makes you invest capital in finding it and finding sustainable ways to have it so that you can mine in the most profitable you can. The profit motivation of mining Bitcoin is actually helping sustainability. But that voice is lost in the criticism right now, particularly after New York threatens to put that three-year moratorium on Bitcoin mining. And then you heard from Elon and then all the institutions chimed in. We have no voice. Miners have no voice. That's the problem currently. So, so Kevin, so a voice is part of this, but presumably there's some very specific things that whether it's miners or developers of digital assets in particular, can do to try to ensure that they do meet these demands of ESG investment committees. Uh, what kind of things should they be focused on? Well, if you're in Kazakhstan burning coal to make Bitcoin, not so good. That's obvious. Obviously, every sustainable committee is going to say, no, we're not, we don't want that. We've got to find a different way to do it. And I think a lot of the energy now, and there's more and more of this conversation and dialogue occurring, is to go to the institution itself and say, I'm a Bitcoin miner. I have a sustainability mandate. I am in sync with you. I am going to mine my coin sustainably. Here's my energy source. Here's how I do it. Here's where I mine it. And you can buy my shares if I'm public or I'm private. You can invest in me and I will hold that coin on my balance sheet for you. You will know its providence. You will know it was mined ethically. You will know it was mined sustainably. And we together can build this business together. That's after you as an institution decided to put three or five or six percent into Bitcoin in the first place. 
And there's a lot of excitement about Bitcoin. There's no question. It's the one that most institutions are talking about, even though as a community, the crypto community has lots of other opportunities. Right now, the institutions are interested in being exposed to the volatility of Bitcoin, but they've got to resolve this problem. And I think there's some very interesting research going on now and in, in, indeed investments, and I'm part of it, to try and find a way to tag Bitcoin, a coin itself, that to, to prove that it has a wrapper around it, that it came from a sustainable miner. And I, this sounds out there, but it's being worked on right now because that's what institutions want. And when that dam gets released, the amount of capital that will come into Bitcoin, it'll be the reason it goes to 100,000, 200,000 and all the dreaming that's been going on around price appreciation. That's not going to happen until institutions start to buy it. So everyone's got to wake up and realize there's demand, but it's got to be done around ESG concerns. So to your point, there definitely are some really exciting projects and data and high quality research on these topics. Uh, but the reality is, at least right now, the debate around Bitcoin's carbon footprint is really these, it's happening in these overly simplistic talking points on both sides. And so some of us really believe there's a critical need for more nuanced, sophisticated dialogue on what's possible and what's not possible. What do you think can be done to help shift the narrative? Well, the narrative is going to be shipped by the market itself. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of miscommunication and a lot of mistruths about it. The fact that there are miners in China and other places in the world, Iran, Iraq, Kazakhstan, et cetera, that are not really concerned about ESG issues because they've never had to deal with it, but they're still profitable miners. New mining operations, new investments in mining are very, very, let's call it hip to the issue. They get it. And particularly if they're going after institutional capital, there's many deals in the market right now that are trying to raise 100, 200, $300 million to build out facilities in a sustainable fashion. So obviously, this is a very new issue. It's probably only four months old, but it's becoming a big cry from those institutional investors. And the community itself, there's many different views. There's no question about it. But this issue is not going away. That's for sure. And if you want to unlock, as I said earlier, the power of the institutional dollar, the billions and billions of dollars that would be coming into Bitcoin alone, if it was in a way that would be part of the mandate for sustainability and ethics, that's what really unlocks the power. So everybody that owns Bitcoin today, regardless of how it was mined, is incentivized to solve this problem for one reason alone, price appreciation. This is not brain surgery. Everybody can figure this out, price and demand. And to, to ignore it and to say, ah, oh, it doesn't matter is a huge mistake. And I think over time, particularly over the next 24 months is the new deals. Every deal I look at now to invest in a miner, just let's stay in the mining sector for a moment. It's the number one question I have. How are you dealing with the ESG issue? What is your plan to that may want to own your stock down the road just to have exposure to your coin? What are you doing about it? Are you taking off flared gas? Are you new a hydro facility for hydroelectric? Are you going to new geographies where there's very, very sustainable, low cost power? What's the plan? And I'm glad we're having the conversation. I'm glad you're focusing on it because it is a very big deal. So it sounds like you think this is very demand side driven. Do you think that there's alignment in these investors? Do you think that they agree on what it is they want to see? Well, you know, it goes from a baseline of don't burn coal, don't do harm to let's find the most profitable miner that has found a way to get the lowest cost energy contract. I mean, there's a lot of differences between all of these different offerings. But th this issue, we weren't even talking about as a you know, crypto community just 11 months ago. It wasn't on anybody's radar screen. And then all of a sudden you started to hear it, no matter what direction it came from. There's all kinds of people talking about it. But I think it's not a bad thing at all. The challenge with a decentralized asset like Bitcoin is there's no central voice. 
There are thousands of participants, but there's no committee. There's no, for lack of a better word, lobby group that says, no, these are the actual stats. This is the real information. There's lots of different tangents, but it's an industry that's so nascent, so new that it hasn't found a way to say, wait a second, we're being accused of all these incorrect facts. We're going to fix this. We're going to put out real information. In the end, the truth is what matters, particularly if you're an institutional investor and you want to know the facts. But I can guarantee you at the institutional level right now, whether it's sovereign or domestic pension or anybody else around the world, they are listening to what government's saying. You know, Norway just pulled its tax credits because they've got a lot of concern at the popular level. The population, the people that live there are worried about it. You've heard the same concerns out of other geographies saying, why are we burning all this power? to make uh, you know, a currency, but there's no voice. There's nobody pushing back. And I think this is going to change over time. Either the CEOs of the large mining operations will come together and say, here are the facts about what we do, or the crypto community will somehow take from a decentralized view to a central one to address government's concerns at the state level, at the federal level, and at the international level as well. Bitcoin as an asset is here to stay. And now it's got to get in sync with what institutions want before they buy it. Thank you. This was OShares ETF Chairman Kevin O'Leary on Sustainable Investment. Thanks for joining us. Next, to further our discussion about Wall Street's ESG moment, we're joined by Mark McDivitt, who's the COO of Context Labs and the former global head of ESG at State Street. Hey, Mark. So all of a sudden, ESG has become a very big deal in finance. Uh, it's moved from the more exotic world of alternative investments to being front and center in a lot of firms' asset allocation decisions. What do you think is driving it? Yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you for having me uh, today at CoinDesk, and I'm thrilled to be here and thrilled to talk about this topic. And uh, Kevin O'Leary nailed a lot of the points that I want to talk today about today, so that's the joy of going uh, after Kevin O'Leary. So look, investing utilizing ESG factors has really taken off over the past, say, 12 to 24 months, driven primarily by the urgency uh, to address the climate crisis pointing to the idea of you know, what we can measure, we can manage. And the other key driver is the notion that, look, while ESG has historically been viewed as a values-based discipline, it has finally become apparent to principally the capital markets community that these non-traditional financial risk factors, or ESG, can also help to quantify and drive value or performance of a company. You know, look, the overarching issue or the challenge that the industry faces, though, is the ability to the word we've just been touched on this past 30 minutes is this idea of trust in data, data that is often viewed as biased, latent, lacks providence, lacks veracity, and the correlation often between, say, vendor A and vendor B on the same asset is quite low. The other challenge is that there are a multiplicity of initiatives and standard setting bodies, all with the best intentions of creating a level, basically creating a level of confusion about what data can be trusted, which standard to be able to level set on across all stakeholders. And this is particularly relevant uh, as countries grapple with meeting the Paris Climate Accord targets ahead of COP26 in Glasgow in the fall. So that's a long-winded introduction to say this is a squarely how distributed ledger or blockchain technology and the CoinDesk community can play a key role in the ESG investing space, effectively cementing a level of transparency or trust in the data that frankly doesn't exist today. I'm glad you touched on the Context Labs, uh, what you're doing, because I, I was going to get to that in a moment. But just before we do, you know, in your old job, when you headed up ESG investing at a major financial institution, State Street, tell us about what banks and institutions, what the checklist they were having to apply whenever you're sort of assessing yeah. the value of an investment, whether it complies or not. Yeah, great, great question, uh, Michael. And, and I think that you use the right word, checklist. 
often uh, ESG has been basically a box ticking exercise where we'll put together traditional uh, investment theses and then we'll overlay ESG scores to quantify in fact that you're utilizing ESG and how you're managing risk and looking at performance and compliance purposing. So that's in a nutshell what we're looking at. Well, and now, of course, you're at Context Labs, which is applying distributed ledger solutions to a lot of these data challenges you were talking about. That's right. So how are you addressing environmental data and how are you dealing with this trust problem you spoke about? No, it's brilliant. So blockchain technology is central to the work that we are doing at my firm, Context Labs. Uh, we've developed a software platform called Immutably that ingests all sorts of data to include company-reported filings, satellite source sensor, and third-party ESG data sets. Uh, each step of this process, uh, we like to say, is cryptographically proofed and ledgered, thereby rendering the data that we ingest irrefutably trust or something that we call asset grade. Uh, we're working closely with the oil and gas industry, as an example, the industry, the sector that is right now in the firing lane with addressing the climate crisis and helping them to tokenize their natural gas, something we call distributed ledger, as an example. Another example of how we're using blockchain technology directed principally at the E of ESG, is building and will be offering to the market an asset-grade environmental attribute that companies can use to offset their carbon emissions, something we are calling an AGD coin. When one buys and retires this environmental attribute coin, one can have irrefutable confidence that the data that is verified and additionality of that project is, in fact, being irrefutably trusted. Many of you may have seen the announcement a few months back uh, by the Nature Conservancy, having to recall carbon offsets sold by BlackRock, J.P. Morgan, and Disney, because it was determined that these offsets were, in fact, not adding value to sequestered carbon. This is the kind of headline risk that we can uh, try, we're trying to mitigate in using this platform, leveraging blockchain technology accordingly. Thank you so much, Mark. Mark McDivitt, COO of Context Labs. You know, the world is awash with digital devices that provide mass data on the state of the world. These IoT networks will be critical to measuring ESG performance so that economic actors can make informed ESG decisions in real time. But there's a trust problem to overcome in all this. We need verifiability, international consistency and transparency, and we need all participants in ecosystems such as supply chains to submit and use data in a standardized, coordinated manner. Joining us to discuss this is Christina Dollar, an engineer, computer scientist, serial entrepreneur, and a co-author of a forthcoming book on data and ESG, along with Mark Johnson, who can address this from a data science perspective, and he's from the Rocky Mountain Institute. Welcome, Christina and Mark. Well, thank you for having me. So, Christina, in your book, which I had the pleasure of reading in advance of publication later this uh, year, you talk about the need to standardize data so we can all use it consistently. Can you explain for our viewers why this problem needs to be solved? So the, the issue is that we have a variety of different lenses, right? So we have standards. We have GRI, which is about the company's effect on the world. And then you have the opposite, which is SASB, which is the effect of the world on a company, right? Then you have the analysts who utilize a variety of different methodologies by which to do analysis. So I'll give us an example. We've got Tesla, right? Tesla is saving the planet. But yet there are some analysts will say, well, you know, they've had some problems with the SEC and that's financially material risk, which is what ESB is about. So looking back, you say, oh, there's a risk there. But others will say, oh, well, the risk is gone because they figured it out from a governance perspective. So the risk going forward is going away. You have a variety of different uh, proprietary data sources. So, for example, 
uh, somebody who's following the industry for beverages might buy water tables from a satellite company, whereas somebody else will take outdated FEMA tables. So you, you have different types of data sets. You have different types of methodologies, different types of definitions. And then you also have these standards that actually look at you know, industry geography and define ESG all very differently. Well, so to create standards, though, you need buy-in from a variety of stakeholders, if not all of them across a particular ecosystem. And in this case, this is about as big of a tent as you can imagine. I got to say, as somebody whose specialty is curating unlikely communities, this is a lot of players. How can we get everyone to the table? Well, it's interesting. Um, you know, the, the data piece of this, uh, you know, in the beginning part of the, the book, we talk about the history and this whole ESG space, I would say, is a couple of decades old. But the data space is young. It's probably only 18 months old. And so I think that the process of creating these definitions is coming together. You have people like Larry Fink at BlackRock who are singing the praises of SASB for publicly held companies. Uh, and, but then in Europe, you're using GRI. So I think the, the investment mechanisms for publicly held companies, if, you know, as, as they sort of demand things like SASB, which is much more counting oriented and it's uh, broken down by industry, I think that as that becomes more popular, there'll be more of a trickle down in terms of uh, what investors will be looking for to invest in uh, ESG compliant organizations. So, Mark, you're looking at this more specific data sharing issue of emissions accounting within supply chains. And I know the Rocky Mountain Institute has a proposal for standardizing that accounting, which you described in a Coindesk op-ed earlier today. Can you briefly walk us through that? Yeah, sure. First, thank you all for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And just to piggyback on what Christina was saying, you know, we're really looking at this as a key trend that's emerging. There's been, uh, well, primarily pushed by an influence of consumers, investor, and policy pressures. More and more, climate disclosures are driving decisions and strategy. Uh, and there's increased interest in making these disclosures financially material. Uh, and what that really means is that they're moving from mere line items on financial statements to a point where they play a crucial role in defining what a company does to uh, maximize its market value. Uh, and given these dynamics, um, it's our expectation, or we don't think it's very unreasonable to expect that these disclosures of ESG metrics, or at the very least, GHG inventories, uh, may become a requirement in U.S. GAAP and IFRS financial reporting within this decade. Uh, however, when this occurs, or in order for it to occur, uh, there must be a robust data standard to represent this information uh, and these disclosures. Now, in order for that robust data standard to um, fully uh, account for the um, materiality of climate risks, it must uh, comprehensively account for the embodied emissions across supply chains. And with that, I mean, you know, scope one and scope two emissions, direct emissions associated with an individual stakeholder's operation, but also scope three emissions, those indirect emissions that more times than not take up the lion's share of a carbon footprint for an organization and more times than not are not uh, specifically reported on or accounted for. And furthermore, we believe that there is a crucial need for a system to comprehensively account for all of these emissions to be built in a digitally native manner. Current greenhouse gas uh, accounting uh, practices, standards, methodologies, as well as protocols are more or less guidance documentation that uh, call for manual calculation, data input, and, uh, and disclosure. 
Okay, so, so Mark, if we take that model that you're developing, you know, hopefully that brings us to a world with richer, more reliable supply chain-wide data. How do we turn that then into something actionable so that supply chain partners can collectively work together sort of to iteratively improve their processes in pursuit of their common interest? How do we actually incentivize them in many respects to Certainly. build on the data? Certainly, and you're hitting on a very crucial point of, uh, one, the system that we are developing into a forthcoming report that will detail this and, more de- er, and provide more detail of this. Really, we believe that there's a, a great need to um, build a system that takes individual components from a number of different domains. You know, a technological solution is not going to be a panacea to solve all of the ailments of carbon accounting and of ESG reporting, um, but it is a specific pillar of the comprehensive uh, solution. Another crucial piece is the carbon accounting piece. There are still a number of challenges associated with comprehensively accounting for the carbon embedded in supply chains. And we believe for this proposed solution that we need to build on existing greenhouse gas protocol, uh, which is developed, co-developed by the World Business Council for Sustainable Development and the World Resource Institute to you know, meaningfully improve it in a number of crucial ways, as well as leverage a number of the existing projects and, and protocols that reside in the blockchain space. Um, such as IPFS, such as uh, LibP2P, such as potentially uh, some of the implementations of Ethereum or Polkadot to, uh, once again, bring more transparency, more trust, and more comparability across these metrics so that they can become actionable and transactable. Christina, we'll go to you first, uh, which is how can a blockchain actually help with the standards problems you identified? Can it? So I think of blockchain as being the ability to capture a journey of information, right? And so when I think about ESG, I don't think about it just as environmental. I think about it as the social, which is all the different stakeholders, right? And then the governance, the ability to manage all of this information, right? And so what's interesting about blockchain is its ability to bypass the the nature of siloed data in a bunch of siloed different systems and be able to see that trajectory across the entire flow and not just within a particular part of a process that's inside a database, right? But when you combine this with things like IoT or, you know, other technologies to be able to capture that information, you start getting a a fuller image in terms of where something is sourced from, what was the labor policy with respect to the people that were involved with it, And you can start to capture a lot more of that information in sort of an immutable way, because I think that that's one of the biggest issues with respect to, for example, consumers want to buy products that were built in a sustainable way. But if you can't look all the way down a supply chain and be able to see how it was sourced, you know, what are the materials, you know, how was it built? then it's very difficult to actually know that what, you know, what you're buying or consuming is actually built in, in the sustainable way that, that you would like it to be, right? So while the, the standards for that don't really exist today, I think that the technologies are there to be able to capture those journeys of information that give that kind of visibility to a consumer or an investor. So Mark, what do you think some of the challenges are then with integrating distributed ledger architectures into this context? Yeah, sure. Um, first, I just want to make a point on, on Christina's remarks there, which I wholeheartedly agree with. I think that leveraging blockchain for this need allows us to design end-to-end audit trails that showcase or provide at least a higher level of, of granularity and of assurance 
of the who, the what, the where, the when, the why that events took place as raw materials move through supply chains or connected value chains to get to end use products. And that provides a tremendous amount of benefits to end consumers. But also crucially, it allows us to attribute the emissions uh, associated with the production of, of products to the appropriate people. Uh, once again, going back to the, the challenges of comprehensively accounting for emissions associated with supply chains, you know, accounting for the scope three emissions, the indirect emissions associated with operations is a, a very large barrier into making meaningful impact into creating climate differentiated products and services. Thank you to you both, Christina Dolan, Inside Chain CEO, and Mark Johnson from the Rocky Mountain Institute. So if we're exploring the role of blockchain and crypto in achieving ESG compliance and reaching global sustainability goals, so far we've talked about the role blockchains might play to improve the recording and sharing of ESG-relevant information like emissions data. The next step is to consider how to tokenize that information to create liquid, investable digital assets that encapsulate the value it expresses. To discuss this, we're joined by Paul Brody, the Global Innovation Leader of Blockchain Technology at Ernst & Young, and JP Terrio, CEO of Uphold, which leads the consortium behind the Universal Carbon Blockchain. So first, Paul, you've been a strong supporter of public blockchains and other consulting firms went for a private blockchain path. And of course, the one big critique of public blockchain is that they face scalability challenges. Will they be ready for the amount of money and data involved in this global undertaking, which some estimate as much as $150 trillion over the next 30 years? Yeah, I mean, I've got a lot of confidence that public blockchains can handle this. So the markets are liquid. The markets are highly investable. There's great progress being made, both in terms of the carbon consumption, the carbon footprint of this technology, as well as the scalability. So I'm very optimistic about the ability and actually the usefulness in blockchain technology in meeting these challenges. Hey, Paul, uh, your, your team has done research into how we tap the kind of vibrant market model that we've seen in the blockchain and crypto space and how we apply that perhaps to inspiring climate change innovation. Can you explain what you mean by that and what sort of a vision you have? Yeah, I think we've got really sort of kind of two or three really important goals. Number one, we really want to make ESG an investable asset. And it's the kind of investable asset that you can put into the DeFi ecosystem. And so what's been amazing about DeFi and Ethereum is that you can take these assets, right? And they can be things like carbon credits, they can be renewable energy credits, they can be all kinds of things, and you can put them to work in terms of obtaining financing and, and generating cash flow. So the first goal for us is let's make DeFi turn ESG into an investable asset. And then the second goal is the one that one of your prior speakers talked about, Christina. She was talking about trustworthy data, right? We believe that's an incredibly important thing for an audit firm to have a role in. And we want to make sure that people can invest with confidence in these renewable and ESG certified assets. So, you know, EY is one of the big four accounting firms. And, you know, we've often talked about how the world of auditing, the jobs of accountants might change in a world of blockchains. So if blockchains are are going to allow us to audit transactions automatically, what is the role for the accountants in all of this? So the whole world of assurance today is relatively somewhat backwards looking. When auditors sign off on an audit, they basically say, do we believe that a firm is stating truthfully what they have done? And what we are looking forward to is more systems focused on verifying data in real time, right? And so there's a concept called attestation or SOC reporting, which stands for systems of controls. And this is where we look at what's in place to make sure that the company is reporting data correctly in real time. So the goal, I think, in a forward-looking way is shifting the role of assurance 
an audit towards can we verify the data as it's being reported so that you can transact upon that data without having to verify all of it yourself personally. Challenge, Paul, that you that you alluded to is the garbage in, garbage out problem, right? The idea that if we can't rely on the data, if we can't trust it, then what are we actually getting? And even you know, though there some records might wind up being pristine based on how tokenization models are working, how do we really know that we can trust the data that's coming from any sort of source? How do we decide what Oracle is even trustworthy in this context? So this is uh, where I think kind of the Oracle technology is really cool. So there are Oracles that are thinking about multiple data sources. But the biggest challenge we see foresee on the horizon is the source of, for many critical pieces of information, are going to be a single enterprise. They're going to be the only people who can say whether or not they did something in a very timely manner. And so the issue there is, can you have a third party validate that that enterprise is documenting and reporting their information correctly? And that's what a system of controls report stands for, a SOC report. So if somebody says they're doing a SOC report on something, what that means is someone's inspecting the process of how a company gathers and reports the data and verifying that it's being done in a reasonable and consistent manner. It's not maybe quite a guarantee, but it's a higher standard than just a single enterprise by themselves saying, well, no one else can real-time verify this, so just trust me. And that's what our aim is to do, is to increase continuously the level of trust that can be delivered against the information flowing onto the chain. Well, give us an idea, perhaps, of what a digital asset world might look like where there is truly a global liquid market for this. Well, obviously, one of the most common ones are things like cap-and-trade concepts, where companies have said that they will cap the total amount of carbon that they spend, or they will publicly commit to getting to carbon neutral. So my goal is to do a couple of things. First of all, can we help companies tokenize both their consumption and their offsets? And then secondly, can we help create a global marketplace where you can take a commitment from an enterprise to go carbon neutral or carbon negative and turn that into cash that can be used to generate offsets or renewable energy? And I think that's the part that's not yet worked out yet. But my goal is to figure out how to turn these enterprise level commitments that are being made individually in the absence of a really structured global treaty, turn those into investable assets that can pay for the enormous amount of capital that's going to require to transform the global energy infrastructure. And do you think, Paul, that there is agreement from a wide wide enough, let's say, variety of actors on, you know, what data is needed and what kind of form this, this reporting needs to take and what these standards ought to look like? No, no, there definitely is not. Right. And so I hope to, and you know, one of the things that got me very excited when you and Michael came to us to talk about the Coindesk ESG and the consensus discussion here is, We would like to be part of that discussion. We want to participate. And when we look around, we don't see a tokenization standard. We don't see an agreed upon methodology. We don't see enough maturity in the market making mechanisms to do all of these things. We sort of know where we want to go. And we talk to our clients who have made enormous commitments and are willing to put significant money behind those commitments if we could all agree upon standards and tools and mechanisms for implementing those and turning those commitments into green and renewable energy investments, for example. Well, thank you to Paul Brody, Innovation Leader of Blockchain Technology at Ernst Young. And uh, unfortunately, we didn't get to talk to JP Thero, who's the Uphold CEO, would have, would have given us some insights into what they were doing. But Paul, it was a pleasure to talk to you. And thank you for your interest in this project that the, the Working Reform and, and Coindesk is spearheading. So thanks, all of you, for joining us for the first episode of our two-part special, Money Reimagined ESG Edition. Tomorrow, the discussion continues and we ask, can Bitcoin really go green? I'm Michael Casey. 
Thank you for joining Sheila Warren and I. You've been listening to Coindesk's special edition of Money Reimagined Consensus 2021. This episode featured Sheila Warren and Michael J. Casey with special guests Masamba Tioye, Martin Weinstein, Kevin O'Leary, Mark McDivitt, Christina Dolan, Mark Johnson, and Paul Brody. Our theme song is Shepherd, and this episode was produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau with announcements by Adam B. Levine. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcasts at coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening.